Minimalism is a communal invention, and the blank slate that it offers a myth. It is popular around the world because it reacts against a condition that is now everywhere, a state of crisis mixed with the terminal dissatisfaction with the material culture around us that seems to have delivered us to this point, though the fault is our own. When I see the austere kitchens and bare shelves and elegant cement walls, the dim vague colors and the skeletal furniture, the monochrome devices, the white t-shirts, the empty walls, the wide open windows looking out onto nothing in particular, when I see minimalism as a meme on Instagram, as a self-help book commandment, and as an encouragement to get rid of as much as possible in the name of imminently buying more, I see both an anxiety of nothingness and a desire to capitulate to it, like the French phrase for the subconscious flash of desire to jump off a ledge, le appel du vide, the call of the void. The popular minimalist aesthetic is more a symptom of that anxiety, having less as a way of feeling a little more stable in precarious times than a solution. The art, music, architecture, and philosophy that I've described, however, isn't concerned with perfect cleanliness or a specific style. It's about seeking unmediated experiences, giving up control instead of imposing it, paying attention to what's around you without barricading yourself, and accepting ambiguity, understanding that opposites can be part of the same whole. This deeper form of minimalism can't be reduced to a hashtag or sold on a t-shirt. It offers no answers, let alone step-by-step -step guides, and it comes with risks. But it suggests another way of living that we can carry on into the future beyond the length of a fashion trend. Kyle Chaka is a writer who focuses on some of the biggest trends of the era with a special talent for topics that revolve around big tech and design. In his latest book, he hones in on one of the darlings of Silicon Valley at the moment, minimalism. And we're not talking about the 1960s and 70s art movement exactly, which is best known for its sparse gallery displays and love of industrial materials, but the larger minimalist trend that has taken over the 21st century. A trend that's been buoyed by not only Silicon Valley, but architects, designers, and a fashion establishment that continues to be infatuated with the idea that less is more, or at least a good way to package their wares. It's hard not to think in this new gilded age we're living through, many of the 1% have found refuge in a style that hides their hubris. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the host of the Hyperallergic Podcast. My name is Kyle Cheka. I'm a freelance journalist and critic and author, and I live in Washington, D.C. Kyle shouldn't be a stranger to longtime hyperallergic subscribers because he was one of our first employees, believe it or not. I haven't seen Kyle for what must be six years, so it was good to catch up. I've been looking into this for a while, and I think, you know, as you know, I started out my career as an art critic and mm -hmm. an art journalist. And I think I was always drawn toward minimalism as a, an art movement and as, a, as an aesthetic. So I really liked Donald Judd. I really liked modernist architecture. But I think the like, seed of this book started when I started seeing the word minimalism everywhere. I feel like around 2015, 2016, mm -hmm. where it was just in every magazine, like on every blog post, that hotel interiors were minimalist, like a bar was minimalist, a cafe was minimalist, a dress was minimalist, like a storage container was minimalist. And I just had this realization that when people were saying minimalist, they weren't actually talking about the artists who were minimalist or like what minimalism actually was. They were just using the word 
as a symbol of something else, and I wanted to find out like what that was, what it meant to people now. And I mean, in the case of your book, also, I mean, you recognize the fact that the sort of the internet and technology industry was taking on minimalism full mm. on as an aesthetic that they were not just taking on for themselves, but they sort of globalized it in yeah. such a you know a very particular way. And I think anybody who follows you on Twitter. Loves how you sort of point out when those interiors and those <laughs> photos, those press photos, and you're like, wait a minute, you know, here we are in, uh, you know, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, but it's a coffee shop that looks like it'd easily be in Astoria, Queens. Yeah, the minimalist style has become this shorthand for technological culture in some way mm -hmm. that it's become the house style of Silicon Valley. Like, I think. How it, did that happen? How uh, did that happen? Because that doesn't, I mean, I mean, it's attractive, it's wonderful, but you think, you know, in, in, in that context, it's not like minimalism had a huge presence in like Silicon Valley or even the Bay Area before. I mean, it was there, right. but it was always, the Bay Area was known for almost being a little more folksy or like handmade, <laughs> you know, the handmade was much more. And that kind of clinical, well, maybe clinical is the wrong word, but like that kind of minimalism we're talking about. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, the the kind of hard edged minimalism is not what you totally associate with technology, or like you didn't in maybe the '90s or 2000s. Um, right. I think like you can really see it with Steve Jobs. I think like maybe right. Steve Jobs is the is the patient zero of the techno obsession with minimalism. That he actually did take on this super minimalist lifestyle, and he said you didn't need to live with anything. And he has that famous portrait photo of himself in an empty room with only a record player and a Tiffany lamp. He's like, "This is all you need to be happy. Like, look at me. I'm a rich genius, and I'm happy." Why was it a <laughs> Tiffany lamp, by the way? I don't know. Doesn't that seem like an odd thing to be in a minimalist interior? Yeah, I think I think part of the philosophy was like you can have only a few things if they're really fancy and nice. Right. So the Tiffany lamp to him was this icon of niceness and like you know a very old school luxury good, which I think points out some of the ironies of that philosophy is like. Right. Yeah, you can have one great lamp, but it has to be a antique, a valuable <laughs> antique from you know the nineteenth century. Does that point towards the Japanese origins of like minimalism a little? Like this kind of like very refined kind of idea of like this one perfect object <laughs> or this. I mean, yeah. wh where do you think he got it from? Yeah, I mean, he did studies on Buddhism and he did a lot of meditation and he you know did these trips in India. So I think he absorbed some of that mm. lifestyle philosophy or like sense of spirituality. And I do think the especially the visual style of a single object in an empty space is very Japanese. Like yep. traditional Japanese architecture has this feature called the tokonoma, uh, which is a kind of niche in the wall, mm -hmm. like a little gallery. And it's, you know, totally empty. It maybe has a little stage raised up in it. And there's one painting on the wall and maybe one ikebana like flower in a vase in the bottom. And you appreciate it because it's emphasizing or it's focusing your attention on these single things and you're supposed to find beauty in what's in front of you rather than like the excess of other stuff. Right. So I think that's also what Steve Jobs or a lot of other people have gotten wrong is that that kind of aesthetic was not meant to prioritize like super valuable or important or it wasn't about a single masterpiece. It was about appreciating everything. So right. whatever branch of flowers you found outside or like a very handmade ceramic bowl like that was what you should appreciate not the perfect tiffany lamp or right. a perfect iphone 
<laughs> like imagining an right. iPhone in a little niche in a Japanese room is funny. <laughs> uh, that, like that wasn't really the point. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you talk a little bit about how it's sort of been hollowed out of its spiritualness. Yeah. You know, and then so what is it then now? Like what what has it become? Like what what is this Frankenstein the, that the tech world has created? Minimalism now is a trend or a style first and foremost. Like it's a uh, an aesthetic that anyone can adopt and copy, and mm-hmm. you know it references the origins of minimalism, which are very spiritual and like challenging and radical. Mm-hmm. But it's just become this kind of equivalent to a fashion trend that it's a popular style that you can recognize wherever you go and like know that it refers to a particular brand of consumer culture. Uh, right. It's it's like a I describe it a lot as a brand identity, which I think you know it's a it's a visual thing that stands in for a greater idea which is we can live with less stuff as long as it's very fancy and works very well <laughs> and like we can look at twitter wherever we go so you attribute steve jobs to being kind of like the patron saint of this kind of world yeah especially in terms of silicon valley minimalism right, right. and so now what are some of the oddest incarnations of that you've seen mm. in in society today <laughs> My favorite one that I saw recently was uh, some tech bros in Silicon Valley started to do dopamine fasting, which meant that they just would try to not stimulate their brains uh, <laughs> as a way of like, you know, making themselves be happier later. They were going to not be happy right now. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a real thing, or it's it's at least something that the Times found like three people who were doing and then wrote about. Oh wow! Uh, but this is this is like out the. At core least they're of, not dopamine hoarding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's like ecstasy, probably. Um, I don't know. I feel like Silicon Valley could find a way to hoard anything. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that was. I mean, I keep talking about minimalism as like. Consuming less stuff or clearing out your living room becomes a way to consume more or become more obsessed with what you are still consuming, which I think is not the point. Right. But in this dopamine fasting thing, it's like, oh, we're going to basically put off our excess just so we can have even more of it later. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's not minimalism. That's not, you know, conscientious living or anything. That's just. Kind of being an idiot. Or like, <laughs> I'm I'm going to withdraw from normal life so I feel more special about myself or something. Right. So let's talk about minimalism and your relationship with minimalism. Mm-hmm. To sort of you know, I mean, I think our crowd would be really interested to know what your you know experience with minimalism, where you sort of discovered it, how it's sort of like you know manifest in your own life, perhaps mm-hmm. what you understand about it, or like like about it, dislike about it. So uh, yeah, yeah. And the question comes up a lot if if I am a minimalist. You Are know, you? If you write a book about minimalism, that's what people will ask you. And I would say I am a minimalist, but in the terms that I write about, not in the terms of like Mary Kondo or like right. you know self help bloggers. So I, I'm not worried about buying too much stuff. I'm not worried that my apartment is too cluttered, but I am worried about like not having direct sensory experiences of the world around me and you know being kind of numbed by everything. And so I want to like challenge challenge myself to seek out reality and seek out like the deeper meaning of things. So yeah. do you find yourself lingering in the minimalist rooms at museums? <laughs> yeah, I do, though it's funny it's definitely changed my relationship to seeing minimalism in galleries and museums because mm-hmm. I think 
certain artists hold up much better than others in those spaces. Amen. Like Agnes Martin, and Agnes Martin looks good just about anywhere you put it. It's true. Uh, it doesn't really need a perfect space. It doesn't need the perfect light. It's pretty astounding. Right. But Donald Judd, for example, like Judd hated galleries and museums. He thought they were horrible. Like curators were negligent. Like he <laughs> he complained about a lot of stuff. But I think he had a point in this, which is like his work and his sculptures really looks best in his own spaces, like right. in the context of the rest of his life. So if you go to the loft at 101 Spring Street and you see the metal box in his giant loft next to like his open kitchen with a giant deli slicer or like next to some cool Reitfeld chairs, mm-hmm. you see minimalism in the context of life and of living rather than just in a cold gallery. But then I, I visited that house too and you kind of, you wonder, you're like, could you really live here? Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I could mean, live there. You know? I, would, I would live there. <laughs> you know, but then somebody buys you something. <laughs> and yeah, then, then what you, do you do? Or like, you want to change your clothes or like, you're like, you know, you, know, you want to find that book. I mean, actually, he has a really lovely little library. The so library that's different. is good. Yeah. yeah the library is really nice. So, I mean, that maybe this is maximalist, like, little kind of <laughs> nugget in the whole thing. But. Right. He, I, my favorite thing about Judd is like he really collected a lot of stuff. Like he owned tons and tons of stuff. Right. Um, and in the library in Marfa in particular, like in his studio buildings in Marfa, there are just these huge tables that he got for his own work and he just like piles thematic collections of books on them mm-hmm. in little groups. So it's like seeing someone's brain laid out before you on a table. And like in the sense of a clean space, that's not minimalist at all. But in terms of having like a direct relationship with your thoughts and your process of going through life that's like very minimalist absolutely but you know the other thing about it's like one of the things about the minimalist side you know they're they're really i mean there's like a fanaticism around minimalism and i think that's been from the get-go that's not something (laughs) that's been recent or something where do you think that comes from like why are people Mm. like so extreme you know People often talk about themselves as like I think even Roberta Smith has called herself like a a Judd disciple yeah, or yeah. something. She you know, studied with, she like worked for him. That's in right. The studio. You know, and it's like and all these different people. Part of me sort of like it makes me creeped out a little because yeah. you know any kind of ideology or idea <laughs> that is so extreme where you're getting disciples. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, you yeah. kind of. I my instinct is to question that. Totally, and I want to question it in the book and like in my own relationship to it. I think. There's a temptation in minimalism to just take it as far as it will go because mm-hmm. it is a, a solution to everything. It's like you can be happy with nothing. You can be happy getting rid of everything. You can right. start over from zero. Is is like the essential minimalist idea, and we know that we can't start over from zero. Like right. there's so much context, there's so much history, there's so much politics and and social conflict that we have to deal with in art or life. And it's easy to use minimalism to just throw that out and not think about it. So is that what the tech industry is doing a little bit? Mm. Because, you know, part of it is there has been criticism of minimalism as an art movement, partly that it comes at a time where content started to come back into art. Yeah. Do you know, or at least in a mainstream way, particularly when, you know, everything from black artists to pop artists to all these different kinds of artists and all these different movements were putting content. And minimalism was like, (laughs) we're not doing that. Do you know, they were doing, we're back to the tabla rasa as if like, you know, that isn't content in and of itself. Right. I I totally agree with that. There's like a funny early Judd line where he writes that, you know, European art history is garbage and I'm I'm so past this. I'm not even I don't even think about that stuff. And of course, that's totally wrong. Like 
I kind of see minimalism as the last vestige of the modernist idea, mm-hmm. which is that there can be a solution to something. Like there can be a blanket thing, or you can find that clean slate. Right. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's they're not grappling with a lot of stuff that exists in the world. So I think there is like that fanaticism about being able to start over is kind of wrongheaded. Mm-hmm. But I like the minimalists or the people who use minimalism who get beyond that. Like Agnes Martin maybe doesn't suffer from the same critique because she was so singular. And mm-hmm. you know, her paintings were not just about formal qualities. She was like, this is about happiness and joy and love. I'm like, great. Like no no one's disagreeing with those things. Well, her spaces are not like well, I mean I recently went to Taos, New Mexico, and it's like there's the gallery devoted about just her work. Yeah. And you know, it was it's not as alienating as most minimalists. Totally. Do you know? And I don't know why fully. You can't put your finger on it exactly, but I don't feel alienated. Mm-hmm. But when I go into a Judd room, <laughs> I think it's very easy to feel feel that. Yeah, you totally. know. And so the question to me is like, which minimalism is the tech industry actually grabbing onto? Yeah, I think it's the the more alienating, more homogenized, more like there's one way of existing in the world's version of minimalism, where they think, or like the tech industry idea of minimalism is that we will find the perfect solution for everyone in the world, and everyone in the world can use the same iPhone, and that's <laughs> going to be great, and we're going to make billions upon billions of dollars because everyone has this perfect object but that perfection is always a lie and like you know you end up finding the lowest common denominator like an average idea that works for everyone you know i i hope that that's not the original minimalist idea like especially with the early artists who are associated with it it's about taking joy in what exists around you and like thinking about how an industrial material could be an art material and that to me is a much more radical idea Right. I think about a year or two ago, David Zwerner, who's a major gallerist here in New York, he essentially gave an interview that essentially said that he thought that that kind of minimalism was undervalued. <laughs> like, actually, <laughs> totally. and he obviously yeah, meant yeah, monetary yeah. wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, undervalued. And part of me was like, no, it's not. Like, in what world is that undervalued? <laughs> but it, it also made me very conscious of the fact that, you know, when we talk about inequality, we know which side minimalism falls on. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know it's yeah, like it's we, not very popular to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like people aren't sitting there going like, "Oh no, I want to be I want to live a minimalist lifestyle." I mean, something's flipped, right? Yeah. Maybe in society it's the same as like, you know, poor people used to be thin and rich people used to be fat. You know, and that was the stereotype <laughs> and then by the 20th century some of that sort of flipped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we've gotten to the similar where it's sort of that Spartan puritan sparseness has now given way to consumerist excess. Mm-hmm. While the richer someone is, often the minim- more minimalist, with the exception of the Trumps of the world, maybe, <laughs> which are the opposite. Yeah. And I'd like to talk about that in a second, totally, too, totally. because he's sort of an off, you know, he sort of like puts off this kind of uh, bigger narrative we're talking about. But when did that switch actually happen? Were you able to identify or just get a sense of like, was it the 70s? Was it the mm. 80s where like all of a sudden things became affordable? And then all of a sudden people were like, no, 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 no. I'm going to show you how wealthy I am by not buying something. Right. So I think there's two separate aspects to that. Uh, there was a point at which the aesthetic of minimalism became more popular and definitely in the late 70s, early 80s, when like Calvin Klein is doing a photo shoot in Marfa. Right. <laughs> or, right. you know, um, fashion, things like 80s pieces, Donna Karen's like 
kit of mm-hmm. garments that you can live in come out. So that was an uh, to me that's a kind of high cultural acceptance of minimalism that basically the artists started it in the mid 60s to 70s in the early 70s Donald Judd's like Manhattan's over I'm going to move to rural Texas. <laughs> and then I found it really fascinating to see photos of Lucy Lepard's apartment in the mid 70s which was done by, you know, a popular interior architect and was totally minimalist, was like the totally cold, empty space. And this was very avant-garde because she's an avant-garde art critic. Right. Um and then you just kind of keep seeing the aesthetic trickle down and trickle down. And I think white cube galleries are another point mm-hmm. in this chain that like we get used to seeing art in super blank spaces and we see super blank space as a marker of high culture and, and right. high value. And um, people may not realize that really 60s is when that idea even solidified yeah. of the white cube gallery. Right, before that yeah. it's like we looked at paintings on red velvet drapes. <laughs> and with moldings, yeah, you know, moldings on the on the walls, and you know, yeah, no one thought two seconds about that. Right, I think we got accustomed to all this emptiness, and it became a part of the normal visual vocabulary of the world. And then I think really in the two thousands, probably the the process of like not consuming became more high end or more aspirational than actually consuming. And I think. Th- through, at least in my analysis, the financial crisis really precipitated a lot of valuing minimalism yeah. because for a lot of people, consuming more was not possible. It was suddenly extravagance was not in style and it was not feasible. So you have to value something, you have to aspire to something. Let's aspire to less instead of more, aspire to like smaller scale stuff, rustic vibes. And minimalism is right there as this cheap yet elegant aesthetic that can be adopted. Right, and you talk about that in your book that's a real key turning point was the economic crisis. Mm -hmm. But before that, there was something at Silicon Valley too that I want to discuss. It's sort of like anyone who's visited Silicon Valley is always sort of shocked. You're like, wow, that dumpy house is $4 million. (laughs) Do you know there's something about the non-ostentatiousness and I mean, it's kind of maybe it's fake in a little way and it's performed, Mm -hmm. but there's something about Silicon Valley that that has that too. Like this idea of like, let's not show off our money, even yeah. though we have more money than anyone else in the world. <laughs> <Do> you know? <laughs> right. They're like, we're not like those old rich people. Like right. we li- we live in small houses in San Francisco, but we have eight houses in a row. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, and they're all they're all probably attached by a tunnel. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> It looks like nothing, but actually it's the most expensive thing that's ever existed. I think it it comes out of the Silicon Valley mythos of the garage startup. Oh, true. Like, oh, we're true. scrappy yeah. underdogs who just invented a computer in a garage. Like, we deserve our bill like bazillions of dollars. We invented something that the world needs. And we're, you know, at heart, we're still the scrappy underdogs that, you know, scientists in our garages or whatever. But now with I mean, money hasn't changed us. Money hasn't changed money, us. Yeah, you right. don't want to believe that money changes you. You still, you're still the avant-garde programmer or whatever. Right. When really these products that people are making are just the most mainstream things possible. It's like inventing right. television again or something. Right. Right. Whenever a trend like minimalism emerges, I always like to think about what provoked it, and my thoughts kept turning to maximalism. Not really a movement, of course, as much as a new pro-consumerist aesthetic that, frankly, is everywhere. More is more, if you will. And nobody embodies that more than the person in the White House, President Trump, 
who famously lives in a faux-gilded penthouse on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue in a tower named after himself. He's become someone right-wing populism has embraced as a type of uber-American aesthetic ideal. Are maximalists and minimalists in their strange, one-size-fits-all way kind of related? The new populist aesthetic is to have tons of stuff and is to have these traditional, traditionally valuable materials like gold or gilt or ornate decoration. I think like because minimalism can be alienating and is now associated with the wealthy and with high culture the opposite of that is embracing you know the very old school mm-hmm. not even messy 80s cool aesthetic no. it's like the Louis gilded Couture. age literally like or like the french royalty <laughs> yeah yeah like a versailles like american versailles kind of vibe and so i think but i do think they are two sides of the same coin like these are two ways of being obsessed with consuming or not consuming. And so the the hyper-minimalist space can be as ostentatious as the hyper-decorated space. But especially with the figure of Trump, now the kind of high-culture minimalists have even more to push back against. It's like, oh no, we're not like that guy. We're going to not live with so much stuff. We're not going to have gilded, you know, uh, molding on our walls or like a gold toilet or whatever. Uh, we're instead gonna we're gonna conflate this blankness with like liberalism and pop a certain kind of populism, right? Uh, but then the ostentatious comes out another way. We'll be like, no, we're not gonna live with that. But then you know we have like Madagascar chalk walls. Do you <laughs> <Right>. know? <laughs> oh man, like plaster is a whole thing, right? This is the thing. It's like uh, the, that's part of it. It's almost like part of this new incarnation of minimalism is hiding the markers mm-hmm. of status. Yeah. Do you know? It's like if you don't know what kind of wood that is, yeah. you're not going to understand that that's probably one of the rarest woods in Brazil. Right. Right. It's a form of connoisseurship fundamentally. Right. Like right. Judd, if anything, was an amazing connoisseur who appreciated very specific things. And so minimalism becomes an excuse to like take even more pride in your one extremely rare <laughs> Brazilian wood table and to have an excuse to be like, you know, think about a dinner. Your dinner guests come over. What are they going to comment on? Right. The one table that exists. Like, there's nothing else in the room. They're forced right. to be like, "Oh, what oh, is where this did you get the table? table? That's yeah. right. Where did you get the table? Oh, I've never seen a wood grain like that." Right. And so, <laughs> yeah, it becomes a way to fetishize things even more. I think. But does that go against the whole minimalist idea, though? Yeah, I think the minimalist idea is that you can appreciate anything. Like, right. I, I think I have this line in the book that I keep. Enjoying, <laughs> like I think it's a good line. I'm not sure where it is, to be honest. Okay. Or even if it's in the galley, but I I write that you know, an endpoint of the minimalist project is that a stand mixer on a kitchen counter can be as beautiful as the Mona Lisa. Like right. these are, there are two objects in the world. They're equally valuable and aesthetically important. And I think that is an artistic accomplishment, but it also makes people fetishize their stand mixers as like <laughs> <laughs> sculptures or something. Right. So. Well, here, I'm going to segue to your chapter on like emptiness. Yeah. Um, and I think this one, this one artwork maybe captures a little bit because we're sort of like, you know, we're talking about, or what I'm sort of hinting at is the fact that minimalism now has these sort of luxury aspects. Mm-hmm. But I think this one artwork, the New York Earth Room, yeah. this is an interesting one to discuss. So I'm just going to read a couple of lines if that's all right. So the New York Earth Room is meant to be sustained in perpetuity, and so its simplicity also contains a note of permanence. You can come back to it again and again over the course of a lifetime. The facts won't change. It's still to be full of the same dirt. 
but the piece's meaning can shift as you yourself change. This is true of any static artwork. You can never look at a painting the same way twice, but particularly for minimalist art, which rewards and reflects whatever kind of attention you direct at it. So now, those who don't know, Earth Room is actually a room here in the Soho neighborhood of Manhattan that's contained of, what is it, about five, four feet of, like, literally earth, black yeah, earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, dirt. in a dirt, in a room. Um, like soil. Yeah, soil. <laughs> not, not like dust. No, exactly. And it's, though, I hear they clean it, and they sort of <laughs> replenish it. it. Over, yeah. That's right. They, do, they flip it over and make sure things don't grow in it, you know, all that sort of stuff. Now, that's a whole different kind of minimalism. Yeah. Do you know? But it is part of that same world. Mm -hmm. Now, how does that fit in? And how does that fit into what we're talking about? Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, the artist of that work is Walter Zumaria. And he described it as a minimal earth sculpture or something. Mm -hmm. And so it does partake of these minimalist aesthetics in that it's like one thing in an empty room. And yet it's a totally different experience looking at that versus looking at a Judd sculpture, for example, or like a John Chamberlain. Uh, to me, that piece is so much more associative and kind of freeing for the viewer and that it really doesn't give you anything to... You don't even have to appreciate the visual qualities of the earth. You can take in the scent. You can feel the volume of the space. You can just exist in a kind of... Uh, holistic moment that De Maria created. And to me, that piece is so much about what it evokes in the viewer. And, you know, for me, it evokes memories of being in the woods in Connecticut as a child and that all encompassing smell of dirt and earth and plants. Um, and that's, I think that's still a minimal experience because it's making you think about your own sensory perceptions. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a really, it really accomplishes a lot. But I talked to the caretaker of that piece, Bill Dilworth, and he says that often people will, you know, pause and look at the earth for 30 seconds and then come ask him, like, oh, did I miss the project? Did I miss the artwork? Like, what does it mean? And he's like, no, 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 go back and look again and you'll figure out what it means. Like, you have to figure out what it means. And I think that's a powerful insight into how our relationship can be with the world around us. Like you have to figure out what it means. You should know what it means for yourself. And yet the earth room in Soho is this like hyper valuable real estate. That's like above a J crew or something. And it must be maintained by a foundation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's also a symbol of how much that space has been commodified and how much it kind of adds, it adds to the neighborhood. It's a piece of public art, but it's in a mall. Like pretty much, it's yeah. in the the mall of Soho, so there's a real tension there, I think. And I also think the thing about that work, also, and maybe this hints to what the incarnation, what what it's become, minimalism. It's you also can't really you you have so little access to the work. Do you mm-hmm. know? Meaning, like you're yeah, standing yeah, yeah. in one spot, you can't actually walk on the dirt. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can't actually like access it that way. Right. At the same point, but there's this idea of space. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of like kind of snakes around you and and sort of you feel. You know, I guess this is what the beauty of minimalism was. It's sort of like it's it's manifested in so many different ways. But the type we see now seems very specific. Yeah, it's been reduced down. It's often been reduced down to its visual qualities, I think, which is the the emptiness of the room or the bare facts of the material or something. Right. So the idea is that if you appropriate that style, then somehow you're being minimalist and you're being radical. But I don't think that's really true. That's a kind of that's the fashion of minimalism, that the right. style is cool. 
but in the fundamental idea, like nothing is cool. Like Agnes Martin did not think about things being cool. Right. Like <laughs> uh, she thought about how to induce a kind of transcendental experience in the viewer and for herself, and kind of access this. You know, she thought her her paintings were caused by inspiration that came, you know, into her head from some unearthly source. Right. Like <laughs> a right. fake Agnes Martin in a J. Crew store, which do exist, <laughs> is not sending you into a transcendental experience. It's just like a copy of stripes on a canvas. Right. Right. Uh, so it's very easy to have that style without having access to the idea itself. Are there any designers that you would attribute this new incarnation to, or the people that have really sort of promoted it in a concise way, mm. where it's sort of you know where where do the where I guess my question is like where is that coffee shop aesthetic coming <laughs> from? You know where is the oh, bleach yeah. the bleach tables and chairs and the macrame plant hangers and the white sometimes plaster walls? Totally. Like, who 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 really sort of made that into a thing? Yeah. It's a really good question. I'm still kind of investigating that one. I want to say. Wait, would you the, say it's coffee shops? Would you <laughs> say coffee shops that really sort of propagated that? Yeah. So with minimalist interiors in kind of the 2000s, mm-hmm. I think coffee shops were a huge part of it, and maybe office spaces as well. Mm. So especially kind of techie startup offices and co-working spaces that adopted this minimalist mode and got people used to it. And fashion boutiques as well. I mean, I think that was a super early adopter. Right. Like a Gucci or Prada store realizes that how to best highlight their products is this empty space that transforms their bags into a sculpture. Right. And so it kind of that's a short leap from the White Cube gallery to the White Cube fashion boutique. Right. And then that kind of translates further into a restaurant where you're supposed to really appreciate the one thing on the plate. Right. Um, and then it translates into the startup office, which is like we will only focus on our work, and our work is like ethereal and all-encompassing. And I think, I mean, the internet is a huge part of all of this too. Is both in that the internet is a blank space in a way, a blank visual space, and that we experience so much on our phones and through screens that we don't need hectic visual interiors. We're not interested in in complicated visual surroundings because we have so much complication right. in the palm of our hands. I do think the internet, I mean, that's definitely, I fully agree with you there. I mean, one of the things I think the internet did was it made the the baseline a white screen. Yeah, you know, yeah. when you get a 404 screen, most of the time it's white. <laughs> yeah, There is part of that, and that's, um, I know like others have written about the fact that in the 70s, computer blank screens were not white. Right. And then they became white. There's like the black screens, the green. The green like, screens, that deep green that yeah. you would see. And, and now the whiteness is a thing, right? So it's sort of a default that yeah, we look the at. Default. Do you feel like this sort of new wave of minimalism has enriched our lives? <laughs> I mean, what has it actually That's done to us a as a question. society or, or culture? And what hasn't it done, maybe? Right. I think it hasn't solved consumerism. Like Minimalism right. is, is not necessarily a change in direction from consumerism itself because it still fetishizes like brand new stuff and expensive right. objects. You know, and fundamentally, the idea is about that. It is kind of anti-consumerist, but in in reality, it's not really accomplishing that. Um, I think. I mean, I, I also think it's good that minimalism is popular. Like, I think yeah. it's a good aesthetic and it's interesting and like still contains the seeds of this radical art movement. And it, what it asks us to do is still to reconsider what's around us and to 
throw out some of our preconceptions, which is usually a good thing. Like mm-hmm. throw out the notion that all paintings have to have people in them or that fabricating a thing is not an artistic act. So I think even if like five percent of the people who think about minimalism get into those ideas, that is very cool and interesting. But I hope, you know, through my book and other people's writing and more dialogue that we can think more about those deeper ideas and expand the notion of what minimalism is or could be, particularly in terms of it's very international. It has it's not just about these white male artists who are working in Soho. Though it kind of is. At least the early work. Early 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 history. I want to think about minimalism as an expansive thing versus assigning it to one one source or one style or the other. Like I agree with you too. I think we give too much attention to the New York movement. Yeah. Not realizing it was part of a continuum. Yeah, I think it is a continuum. Do you know it's like modernism created its own kind of minimalist spaces, you know? And speaking of which, it does feel like the architecture community has taken on minimalism with a ferocity that probably no (laughs) other community. Do you know you just have to go onto a site like Dezine or something? And it's like it's clear minimalism's won. I mean, at least that's the way it feels. Like. Yeah, I think it has won over in design and architecture. Why? Like it's it's seen as the one solution to everything. Is it because um, it photographs well? Is it because <laughs> it like you know like it travels well because of that? Like what what do you think? Yeah, it translates into an image really well. It's also really identifiable because it is associated with one thing, so mm-hmm. you can easily be like, oh, this is minimalist. It's hard. It's easier to do copy minimalism than to cultivate your own unique sense of taste, and particularly. In architecture, I mean, it's interesting. I think what we call minimalist architecture is basically an evolution of modernist architecture, but with more texture, kind of like it's kind of like a Mies van der Rohe revisited, right? You know, right? Because he was he was very much into the materials, right? The marbles, and Mm -hmm. you know, not all the modernists were, but it does feel like there's. It's like a luxury form of modernism. Yeah, it's luxury modernism. You know, (laughs) that architecture. Yeah, so it's like, oh yeah, that Russian oligarch has a house in the middle of nowhere, and it's you know, it's a tower, and it circulates, and whatever. (laughs) I mean, all these things, you know, and it's again made from some obscure stone or something. Which sounds great, but you kind of have to wonder, like, yeah, you know, about like what's the ideology behind this, right? And the minimalist fetishizing of light and space is like fundamentally not democratic or like right. Um, right. equal opportunity because we now know we should all have much less space and we That's should right. like move in smaller areas and like embrace density whereas mm-hmm. the the idea of minimalist luxury is like a giant empty warehouse loft and that's not a sustainable way of existing in the world in any way so if it's all right with you i want to go off a little bit on a tangent yeah. cuz i'm obsessed with architecture and minimalism <laughs> so and i have a feeling you know i want to pick your brain because you're so good at this One of the things that I've thought about a lot in terms of architecture and this minimalism is people don't exist (laughs) in these images. So even when we're looking back, and you know, as as you know, we're both visual culture people, so we like like to know the history of these things. We look at the 18th century when you had this sort of landed gentry taking their photos. They were always in the image, right, with their land or their property. (laughs) I own this, and yeah, exactly. But we've come to a place where it's the opposite, right? I guess on Instagram it happens a little bit, but the photos were seeing circulating about these spaces have no people in them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean they look like renderings. Right. Like the I'm really obsessed with architecture photography and I would love to write more about that. Uh because the buildings are photographed in order to look like the renderings that they were designed as. Right. Like they are taken from impossible angles or 
you know, in a perfect situation where no people are in the space. And I don't, you know, you can't say one blanket statement about all architecture, but often the the most minimalist spaces are not designed with people in mind. Like mm-hmm. they're not accessible to like, you know, disabled people in any way. Like we, the new Cornell Library. <laughs> the, library <yeah. laughs> the art history library uh, at Cornell University, for those who don't know, was designed in this sort of like way with layers and stairs so that people that were like had any disability issues or even women in heels yeah. or women in skirts were saying this wasn't designed for us. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is definitely a problem. So, <laughs> you know, when you prioritize cleanness and emptiness and, you know, hard geometry over actual accessibility or or the experience of the space, then one you're not being the great architect and two like I hope that minimalism doesn't have to be like that. Like it I don't know that there's one kind of minimalist architecture, but you know, hopefully it would exist on a human scale and would be like about having a good, ex- good visual and physical experience instead of like overwhelming you with empty space or absolutely, uh, absolutely in human scales. So now, is, what was the biggest surprise for you in this book? Mm. Like when you were doing this research, you're thinking through this, you're talking to a lot of people. You know, I mean, it's a field that you know well through art history and art, and you've been writing about this topic now for a decade. Yeah. You know, but there must have been something. Yeah. So, well, (laughs) so I I have this long background in art history and art writing. So that was the. That was the stuff that was most familiar to me, and I think there was a review that came out today that was like, "Kyle is is a great writer, especially when he sticks to the familiar, like, <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> art critic stuff." It was like, uh, you know, you know, it was a long essay. It was otherwise great, but I was like, "Oh, you, fair, you know, I don't know." But what I had the most fun writing about and like learned the most while doing was writing about the the music and pres- like. Music and si- the silence chapter of the book is mm. about minimalist music and kind of our ex- our sensory experience of the world, not as much visual, uh, and also the Japanese chapter, which is called Shadow. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what I I really got so much out of writing the Japan chapter because I had never had the opportunity to go so deeply into the aesthetic evolution of another culture, mm-hmm. and I really think you know minimalism's roots or the idea of of austerity and appreciating austerity goes back a thousand years, two thousand years, and Japanese Buddhism, like the variety that evolved specifically in Japan as an isolated culture, is this really unique and incredibly interesting thing. And also in that chapter, you also talk about how it's sort of manifest in this post World War Two yeah. kind of like the anxieties of Japan itself. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk to people a little bit about that to give totally. them a little bit of a taste of what they could expect? Yeah, I mean. My ultimate argument in the Japan chapter is that minimalism. So minimalism, as we see it today, is this idea that's dominant in the or like a meme in the West that oh we can live better lives by throwing out our stuff and embracing absence and appreciating austerity. And actually, in World War II, as Japan became more nationalistic and hyper militarized, Japanese philosophers were proposing that philosophy as the most unique point of Japan. The fundamental identity of Japan was about absence and austerity and ephemerality. And so this is part of the idea that drove them into World War II or deeper into World War II was that they had to defend this idea of absence and austerity and they had to you know, project it all over Asia because this was the most deepest fundamental Asian idea and Japan should be at the head of it. 
So the the sense that I got was almost that minimalism evolved first as a response to the West, mm-hmm. and then as something that the West kind of appropriated to to fight against itself in a way. Hmm. So the West adopts minimalism to be like, oh no, that consumerism is not for us anymore. Whereas the Japanese adopted minimalism as a way to put themselves farther away from the West. And it's yeah. such a that process to me is so fascinating and speaks to the the ambiguous origins of minimalism and the ways that it always creates conflicts with itself. So now the way that the tech industry has sort of adapted minimalism, how has that impacted the way we see it? Because you know, part of me sort of like I have to say, like in the last couple of years, I find myself becoming a little more maximalist <laughs> because you know I don't want my apartment to look like a coffee shop. Right. Even our our office is like you know it's in an industrial building. It's like white walls. I mean, it's not like we can afford to like transform the <laughs> space. It's sort of like the default, yeah. right? You know, and we're not the only company in here that has this kind of default, you know, industrial space. Has it pushed us away from that? Has it? Is it? Have you seen a change in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think as you talked about a little bit before, there's a slight turn toward like more texture and like hanging plant baskets and <laughs> you know woven things. And I think there's definitely a turn against minimalism in terms of the the sheer emptiness and austerity because we've gotten tired of it. It's this fashion that's a little bit played out at the moment and doesn't mean as much anymore as right. as we've talked about. But I think like minimalism never goes away, and so we just kind of upgrade or change the flavor a little bit, so we're not so bored of it. And I think the next wave of minimalist aesthetic is definitely coming from the West Coast in the U.S., hmm. where you have this interest in like textures and sunset colors and like handmade things, but they're still in this kind of empty space. Like it's still very austere, but it's more organic and human, maybe. Right. If, I think I, I know exactly. I think what you're talking about is sort of like those spaces where all of a sudden there are ceramic fixtures, ceramics, or huge. you know, ceramics is huge, right? <laughs> it's like it's like the new wave, or yeah. fabric and textiles, yeah. and macrame and these kinds of like touches. But they also feel very seventies. You mm-hmm. know, they still seem to be part of that general wave. Yeah, the same moment, right? And I mean, we can we haven't really talked about West Coast minimalism, which you know. Minim- well, why don't you define that for some people? Yeah. Like, you know, what what differentiates that? Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> so I keep reiterating how like minimalism is not one thing, and there's yeah. no one version. Mm-hmm. But the the actual word minimalism was used in relation to a bunch of New York artists like Judd and Solowit and John Chamberlain and all these people. Carl but, Andre. And, yeah, yeah, even Yoyoi Kusama, who's oh, right, like not right, known right, as a minimalist now at all, was in that group. But at, at the same time, or maybe a little later, there were a bunch of artists in Los Angeles and in California who were kind of in the 60s getting interested in Zen aesthetics and thinking about light and space. Like they are called, they're often called the light and space artists. Right. Um, and so these people are thinking about how we experience light and how we experience space. <laughs> so stupid. Yes, light and space artists. Uh, but they're thinking about. We know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they do. It's so hard to describe. Right, but there is definitely there is a sense it feels like of space being um, much more connected to the landscape. Maybe yeah, the, open the landscape Coast, of yeah. California, the kind of shades of the sunset, the endless the, sky, the notion of the endless sky, the looking out to the ocean. I mean, all yeah, these the types ocean, of yeah, like and Robert Irwin's obsession with muscle cars. And Right. Like highly right. polished, like carefully made industrial goods. 
Which and even that's... like John McLaughlin does it in his sort of like finishes and his veneers. Totally. I mean, super minimalist could almost be a Judd if it wasn't for the finish. Right, right. You it's know? so elegant and shiny yeah. and beautiful. It's like more straightforwardly beautiful, I think, than mm-hmm. New York minimalism. Right. But also I think if a, if a work by Judd is meant to shock you and be like, a red box. This red box is the art. Like there is nothing else. <laughs> Don't expect anything else. California light and space people are like, oh, let me, let me show you your own perception. Like let me make you think about how you see space. It's like a much more gentle, welcoming, seductive maybe process with their work. Like someone like Mary Course, who oh yeah, kind of mixed diamond pieces and like different sparkly material into her paint. It's a very subtle effect, but when you look at it from the right angle, you're suddenly like, oh, this here's this beautiful, sparkling, evanescent surface. Whereas the Judd equivalent, I don't need to keep talking about Judd, but the, <laughs> well, I mean, he was. I mean, I'm glad you are because he was so important. I think, he and was he very important, and yeah. he actually codified it. I think in places like Marfa, right. in a way that very few art movements have ever had. Right, it's like a home base. But you know one thing I found, I don't know, did you know this? I didn't know this strangely, I just found this recently. But Marfa, the the Judd Foundation, is actually in a former German detention camp? Yeah, yeah, the... um well, untitled, whatever the the aluminum pieces yeah. are in a artillery two artillery sheds that were turned into German prisoner of war camps, and there's these like ominous slogans painted on the walls in German that are like, you know, keep quiet or lose your head or something similar to that. Um, <laughs> and so it's this very militaristic, ominous space, and I think that is also a problem with Judd and minimalism is that he kind of. It's like, oh, look, I'm preserving this historical space and I'm this is exactly how it was. I'm just highlighting its innate industrial quality, but he's like not dealing with the obvious political and ideological connotations of that space. So I'm going to drill down on something with you. I know this is a little off topic, mm. but I, I, I would feel amiss if we didn't have this mm. moment. John Power, you probably know, remember him, Star Wars Modern, he wrote yeah, yeah. a lot. He often pointed out the fact that like in Star Wars, like to use a, a pop culture reference, the empire is the minimalist. <laughs> yeah, the fascists are always minimalist. Like. <laughs> That's the other thing. Fascists, uh, the fa- the sort of the connection with fascism and minimalism. Yeah, it's uh, very really fascinating. And why does that still happen? You know, and I mean, we psychologically in our pop culture, that's sort of a connection. But then we have like the tech world, and they've sort of like co-opted this, and then sort of like created something else. And I mean, how are those connected? Or what? <laughs> what do you think of that sort of reading? Yeah, I mean, I think. One way that kind of culture digested minimalism and adopted it from the 70s to the 2000s or whatever was as this symbol for fascism or like an authoritarian right. aesthetic. So like like 2001 A Space Odyssey, like the minimalist right. spaces are alienating and posthuman and futuristic. And in Star Wars, the, the Empire ships and stuff are imposing and powerful and... Again, posthuman, but gorgeous. Yeah, like beautiful. You know, like beautiful. It's uh, definitely beautiful. And again, about surfaces and whiteness and blackness and these sort of like <laughs> monochromes yeah. and all these other things. Well, who who was the fashion designer who did the Nazi uniforms? Uh, oh, right, Hugo Boss. That's I think, right. That's the, right. I think it was Hugo Boss. Minimalist That's right. Nazi uniforms. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think. Like minimalism easily bleeds into authoritarianism or fascism because it can be seen as a blanket aesthetic or a blanket solution where it's like, we will all wear the same color, we will all be the same. 
So then maybe we should have known when uh, the tech industry started adapting <laughs> minimalism that uh, in four or five years we'd be <laughs> yeah. we'd be here like, oh dude, now we get it. <laughs> right. Well, like Instagram, for example, is like hyper minimalist and like enforces a certain aesthetic homogeneity and it like contains all of our experience within one restricted space. And we should right. have known that that would make our culture more boring and make our tastes more boring and everything else. So uh, what is the anti-Instagram? Is it TikTok? Mm. <laughs> like you know, like it's like that's one of the things I've noticed that people don't translate well from one to the other. Yeah. People who are good on Instagram aren't mostly aren't really as good in, in TikTok. Right. So is that is that a turn? Is that like is that a turn in our culture? I wonder. Yeah, I think people are noticing a turn in social media influencers, especially where it's going from like perfectly controlled and immaculately presented to something more human and more like expansive and funny and improvisational. But TikTok. TikTok, like the content versus the delivery freaks me out. Like the content is so human and crowdsourced and democratic, but then the delivery system is like fully controlled and incomprehensible and unchangeable, where it's this, you know, Chinese company with this super passive algorithm that's just feeding you and feeding you and feeding you. It's like a foie gras duck, you know. Like that I don't think that can be healthy. <laughs> like no. at least on Instagram you're choosing who you follow and it's it's not just a feed of random stuff unless right. you're only on the explore tab. You can be like, oh I want some more architecture in my feed. Like right. do this. Whereas TikTok I think seems to make that a much more passive experience and more just like the machine knows what you like. Exporting your taste to a machine is like the least minimalist thing possible because right. you want to have your own experience of everything. You want to make your own decisions and be a individual. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So now, is there something about the book you would like to share to sort of whet people's appetite mm. in, in terms of you know, particularly because there are going to be a lot of art people um, listening to this and minimalism? As much as I think, and this is a you know, this is something I think is not just uh, about minimalism, but in general, there's been a reconsidering of a lot of the holy grails of the art community, right? Mm. And understanding how they actually fit in and how they sort of like the influence they've had and who they exclude, yeah. do you know? And minimalism doesn't really include everybody, or at least it doesn't feel that way all the time. right? Because there does seem to be for a lot of people, you almost have to learn to appreciate minimalism. It's right? an acquired taste. I mean, way. think about bringing like one of your older relatives or someone who doesn't know art into a museum with minimalism. <laughs> what is the first thing you have to do? You almost have to be like, no, 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 let me explain to you why this is important yeah. or why this is crucial. And then you have to go into a whole spiel and it feels like it turns us all into evangelists <laughs> a little bit because, you know, it's like even if I don't like minimalism, I still end up like having to defend it to people who don't, you know, who don't <laughs> That's so interesting, like yeah. I mean, do you do the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, you always hear that critique in museums, like with people looking at abstract expressionism. Oh, my kid could do that. Right. I think minimalism still suffers from my kid could do that syndrome. Even with people in the art world, they're like, I could make, I could get this box from a store or whatever. And that's kind of the point is that you could get the box from the store and it would be just as valid right. as this, the box that's on the gallery floor. Like, I was walking through like down Bowery, I think, one day with my friend and I saw this like, section of an air conditioning vent or something. And it was like, oh man, I really want to pick this up, take it home, put it on my wall, and I'll just like pretend it's like a Judd artwork. Because like functionally there's no difference no. between the one that he made and the one that I would make. And if it's on a big empty wall, you could bring even an art person into your home and be like, 
Yeah, that's a Judd from 1965. They wouldn't know. But actually, it's an air conditioning vent. That's right. They're the same thing. Like that, that to me can either be alienating or freeing that like anything you pick up. I think, I just think the minimalist idea is more expansive than people recognize. And so to say, oh, I could make that same box or, uh, you know, Ikea makes it is to kind of miss the point that yes, like industrial materials are aesthetic experiences and like they can be very beautiful and we should find beauty in that. I think I really like that. The music for this episode is Dark Star's Time Away, which is taken from the recent album News From Nowhere, and it comes to us courtesy of Warp Records. We're going to end this podcast with the voice of the author reading from his book. It's about an experience he had in a sensory deprivation tank in Washington, D.C. I'm Hrag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Instead of relaxed, I felt slightly terrified. I sometimes suffer from acute claustrophobia. I hate elevators and can't stand when the subway stops underground for long. I think it's partly boredom that I'm afraid of, the threat of being disconnected after becoming too used to the constant barrage of stimuli. I was not actually looking forward to sealing myself inside a clamshell with no other activity for an hour, no matter how soothing. Maybe it would be too much silence? Despite my nerves, I did as instructed. I stripped entirely, showered, still feeling awkward, and gingerly dipped a toe into the water. When I immersed myself, my body bounced up like the bob on a fishing lure, three quarters in the water and one quarter out. Then the lights turned off and I was left alone. Calling it womb-like would be an understatement, since I was literally immersed in liquid inside a biomorphic capsule. The floating experience immediately cancels out a lot of noise, and not just sound waves. I felt my mind cut off from physical sensation since I no longer had to think about where my limbs were moving in space. There was no visual information to process. Opening my eyes was the same as closing them. But the silence was far from complete. I could still hear the low vibration of motors and tires spinning on the street pavement outside. Then I noticed squeaks and splashes from the pods that must have been just on the other side of the walls of my chamber. I couldn't stop thinking about how there were other naked people floating in other pods in other rooms, sealed away just like me. We were all in our own separate environments, each divorced from the world, and yet somehow also together. Like the future forecasting precogs in Minority Report, immersed supine in their glowing blue communal hot tub, except totally useless. (laughs) 